ranks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary yes I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray. Through his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory Gathered by the crystal sea I was bruised, but Jesus healed me Faith was I from many a fall Sight was gone, and fear possessed me But he freed me from them all Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me Sing it with the saints in glory Gathered by the crystal sea Days of darkness still come o'er me Sorrow's path I often tread But the Savior still is with me By his hand I'm safely led Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over Where the loved ones I shall meet Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story 
of the cross who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, as we continue to study this portion of God's Word, and today we're going to begin reading at verse 10 and re read through verse 18. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning to praise you because you alone are worthy of our praise. You are the maker and the creator of all things. You are God and there is none other. And you are worthy of worship. We thank you that you've given us the privilege to assemble in this building this morning as your church. Father, we thank you that you have left for us in this Bible a perfect revelation of who you are, what you have done, and what you are going to do, and that you have left for us instruction as to how we might be right with you and how we might be obedient and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look into this word this morning, that you will open the eyes of our heart, that you will give to us a spirit of wisdom, of revelation and knowledge and discernment in the knowledge of Christ. Father, we pray that we may take this word and hide it in our hearts, that we will not sin against you, that we may love you with all of our heart and love our fellow man as well. Father, we pray that everything that is said and done and thought in this time this morning would be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Number 142, there is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that blood Lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that blood Lose all their guilty stains 
The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though I see, washed all my sins away. Washed all my sins away. Washed all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme And shall be till I die And shall be till I die And shall be till I die Redeeming love has been my theme And shall be till I die if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Man's opinion of himself differs quite a bit from God's opinion of him. I read this week on the, uh, the Internet a, a very popular author. He's quoted frequently uh, by people on the internet, you know, and if it's on the internet, of course you can believe it, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln said that, but I want to read you the, I want to read you the quote, and you think about it as I read it, faith in the biblical sense does not mean maintaining that certain assertions are true, rather it is a relationship of trust between humanity and God, God believes in us. This is the basis on which we can believe in God without thereby losing our human dignity. God trusts us and hopes that we return the compliment. Because God has confidence in us, we can develop healthy self-confidence. Now, there is a, there's an old Greek word for theology like this reflected in this text. You have heard me several times give it to you, it's uh, baloney. Uh, and that's what this is. This, this is a bunch of baloney. I mean, faith does not, maintain, does not mean maintaining that certain assertions are true. If you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. If you don't maintain that is true, you cannot be saved. Faith is the, one of the 
one of the key elements in faith is knowledge. You, you got to know something to believe something. You have to have knowledge before you can believe anything. God believes in us. God trusts us, really. Let me read to you what we've already looked at in Romans chapter 1 about what, what God believes about us. He says of mankind, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's what God believes about us. That's not pretty. That, I'm not sure that's going to inspire self-confidence, either in God or me, either one. And after that list of vices, which, by the way, is found in the end of Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, that we looked at a few weeks ago, you might think that a, a further catalog of man's uh, vices would be unnecessary. And yet, when we come to this section of Romans that we're looking at now, uh, Paul, once again, points out man's condition so that man might know how desperate his condition is apart from grace, that it is only the grace of God that can save. So, we have these verses in chapter 3, uh, 13 through 18. Now, the difference between this passage and the passage in Romans 1 is that each of the sentences found here in chapter 3 is a quotation from the Old Testament, whereas the, the earlier passage was made up of the apostles' own descriptive terminology. So Romans 1 is a description of an apostle, yes, filled with the Holy Spirit, his words are true, they are the words of God. But in Romans chapter 3, we have what God has already said about man. And neither of them, neither of them inspire confidence. Neither of them tell us that God believes in us. Well, I, I suppose you could say that they say they do teach that God believes in us. He believes that we are utterly, hopelessly lost. That we are completely without anything that could merit or gain favor in the eyes of God. And again, I've mentioned several times, what we are studying right now forms the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity does not mean that man is as wicked as he can possibly be. Even, even Hitler loved his dog. Well, he poisoned him, at the, but anyway. But he loved his dog, so. But it means, total depravity means there's nothing in man apart from grace that can please God. There's nothing that man can do of his own volition, his own works, that will merit him favor with God. He must come to God acknowledging that he is a sinner and that he is completely 
completely, totally, and absolutely condemned before God. And that apart from grace, there is no hope that he should ever see heaven. Uh, Paul begins uh, this catalog of vices talking about man's wicked words. And there's three quotations from the Old Testament here. Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, verse 7. There's some other passages that are similar, but this is where these are taken from. What is striking about all of these uh, in verses 13 and 14 is that they refer to organs of speech. He talks about the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. They describe how words are used to harm others. In the previous verses, we've shown how people harm themselves by turning away from God. And here we learn how after they have done that, then they use the organs of speech that God has given them to glorify himself to hurt others. Perhaps uh, when you were a child, at least if you were a child Oh, within 20 years of, you know, what I am, you know, 100 years ago, uh, that when people would say hurtful things to you, you were taught this little ditty, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Unfortunately, I'm sure you learned, as I did at a rather early age, that it's not true, that words can hurt you that words can inflict terrible pain. They hurt deeply. And in fact, sometimes they hurt permanently. When I, when I think back upon my childhood, uh, my teenage years, for instance, and then until the time that I got married, let's say from the time I was 15 until I was 23, uh, I had all the bones broken in my right foot. I nearly cut off two fingers in an altercation with a meat slicer. Uh, I had my cheekbone shattered and this beautiful nose broken four times. The doctor says at least four times. And you know what? I know I remember the incidents, but I don't remember any of the pain. I, some of those things hurt pretty bad, but I don't remember any of the pain. But I still remember hurtful words that people said to me during that time. And I can still feel the pain of them. I, I, I still hurt when I recall them. Uh, sticks and stones do hurt our bones temporarily, but words can wound forever. And I think that what Paul is saying here goes even, even deeper than that. Uh, because the words that describe the outcome of the harmful words of the ungodly all ultimately have to do not with psychological injury, but with death. Paul gives a description of, uh, for instance, words of false teaching, of heresy. I think Paul is making reference here not just hateful words that men speak to one another, but false teaching, heresy that can kill the soul. He starts this description by saying their throat is an open grave. What does that mean? Well, if you opened up a grave in which a body had been buried a couple of weeks before, 
and was in an advanced state of putrefaction, the stench is beyond description. It's, it's foul. It's offensive. Uh, you, you know that. Just You can be driving down the road, and if you have your windows down, then if an animal has been killed along the side of the road, all of a sudden there comes this terrible smell. Well, think of opening up a grave where a body is uh, decaying. That is the condition of the throat of man under sin. The natural man, apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the mouth speaks terrible things because the heart is defiled. It is all of these things that Paul says it is in chapter 1 and again here in chapter 3. The world's purveyor of words are engaged in destroying the souls of men. And they are highly regarded in our society. I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess as to how many murders that a child might view now by the time they're 18 from television and movies and video games, probably hundreds, thousands even. And how many illicit sexual relationships do people see and view by the time they turn 18 or 20 years of age? And none of those relationships uh, end up badly, of course. There's, there's nothing about sexually transmitted diseases. There's nothing about unwanted pregnancy, none of that. That doesn't occur in the, in the movies and the books that glorify this sin. It's all beautiful. You know, it's, it's people strolling down a beach or in a, in a quiet meadow. They don't give the full picture because ultimately immorality kills. Ultimately, sin destroys. And we don't get that kind of picture. On the television, in the movies, immorality is the norm. It is not, it is not just that immorality is depicted, it is celebrated. It is celebrated as normal, and if you are moral in the biblical sense, that is abnormal. But again, immorality kills. We need to start thinking differently about what we watch, about what we read, about where our, where our eyes take us. These messages are not harmless entertainment. They are killing the souls of young people. And we're going to pay a heavy price for that. But then he talks about the deceit of smooth speech. He said they use their tongues to deceive. Uh, in the original, this means that their tongues are very, very smooth, speaking falsehoods and flatteries and lies, pretending that that which is not true. For instance, pretending to be delighted to meet someone when in point of fact they're wishing they'd never crossed their path ever. Uh, that that's the way that's the way the world pretty much operates today is tongues of of deceit uh, this is rather a perfect description of our society of people who deceive with their lips uh, 
I'll be an equal opportunity offender here. Uh, I remember my father saying something many years ago about politicians. And he said, you know how you can tell if a politician is lying? Watch and see if his lips are moving. Now, that's for all politicians. But that's the state of politics pretty much in our world today, is deceit and lies and smooth words. That's the reason gossip columns in the newspaper are so popular. It's the reason that television shows that deal mainly with everybody's drama are so popular, so salacious. Uh, people run around all the time acting like they're so fond of one another when in point of fact they despise each other. But they, they, they lie and they deceive. Uh, then he says they speak with the deadliness of the serpent. Look at the last part of verse 13. The venom of asp is under their lips. He gives a, a, a fine zoological description here. The, the, the asp, the very poisonous snake of the Middle East, has a little bag of poison at the root of the lips. The little bag is in the, under the upper jaw of the adder or the asp. And when he closes his fangs, the poison is released into the wound. And that way... Uh, he poisons and kills his victim. Uh, this is the truth about man, according to Scripture. He speaks with a smooth tongue, but under his lip is the venom of an adder. This poison, honey on the lips, poison under them. Uh, that, that comes out in, in conversations. It comes out everywhere else. Look, look at... Look at advertisements that are done on television or in magazines or on the Internet. One would think if you use the right products that you will be rich, that you will always have a, a you know, supermodel for boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, uh, that, that things will always be wonderful, that you will live in a fine home, you drive a fine car, uh, you'll have the best of everything. The advertisement says it is so. You just, you just have to use the right toothpaste and the right deodorant, the right shampoo. All, all of that done, then you got it made. Well, how come everybody's life isn't like that? If Madison Avenue is telling us the truth, why don't we all have a house like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates? Something, something happened along the way. Words that are used to poison, lies, deceit. Uh, it's the same way with false teaching today. I, I hear people who talk about uh, some television pastors, pleasant they are to listen to, how they don't talk about things like this, they don't talk about sin. They don't talk about deceit. They talk about how wonderful everything is and how wonderful you are and how you can have your best life now and how this is a beautiful world and all the world is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you just believe in yourself, God will believe in you. 
God trusts you. God believes in you. And that enables you to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, there's nothing that you can't do. And let's don't talk about sin. And let's don't talk about the need for grace. Let's don't talk about the wrath of God. Let's don't talk about sin kills, not only physically, but eternally. Let's don't talk about those things. False teaching given to the people to put them to sleep spiritually gives them a false exhilaration and finally destroys their soul. And then he says in verse 14 that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now we, we usually think of curses as being cursing just profanity. Well, it's, it's much, much more than that. Uh, it, it's, it's wishing that people were, could be destroyed because they have done something evil to you or done something that you regard as wrong. You, you curse them. Uh, you remember Job's wife? We studied the book of Job back a couple of years ago when Job lost, lost all of his possessions and then all of his uh, family and then his health. What did his wife say? Curse God and die. You're a fool. You know, what you need to do is curse God and die. I've been frequently disappointed in ministry when bad things have happened to people in the church and those people become bitter and they curse God by their words I, I, I've gone into their homes and they, they say to me I don't know why this happened to me I've tried to be a good person I've, I've tried to live right what are you saying when you're saying that what are you saying God has unfairly unrighteously brought this on me and brought this into my life you're cursing God because nothing can happen in your life apart from the providence of a sovereign God part of, part of uh, my reason for preaching through the books of the Bible for these past 34 years as the pastor at North Athens has been to prepare you for those times that inevitably are going to come so that you may react like Job. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that you will not become bitter. That you will see that, in point of fact, we all deserve to die because we are all sinners. I've told you before, as regards the life that he lived, I, I personally think my father was the best man that I ever knew. He lived well. He died well. He maintained his testimony right to the very end. The last words out of his mouth were to me, and he said, you tell all of them that I love them. That's how his life ended. And yet, when people say, why did your father suffer like he did for those four months and why did he die it was because he deserved it because in spite of the fact that he was a good man he was a sinner now fortunately he was a sinner saved by grace 
He had put his faith, his trust in Jesus Christ, and he died with heaven on his mind and his lips. But he died because he deserved to die. I will die because I deserve to die. I, I, I hope that I will die with grace. I don't know. I may die kicking and screaming and crying like a nine-year-old girl. I don't know. But I hope I have enough grace when the time comes to die as I have tried to live, believing in Christ. Then he talks in verses 15 through 17 about man's wicked ways. These are verses quoted from Isaiah chapter 59. And they talk about three acts of violent men. First of all, murder. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It is significant, I think, that the first recorded sin outside of the Garden of Eden was murder. Sin leaped full grown into human experience. Man's first sin separated him from God. His second sin separated man from man, brother from brother. I've always found it interesting that Cain's religion that was too refined and too sophisticated to kill a lamb and bring it as an offering was not too refined to murder his brother. Paul says that men are swift to shed blood. In the United States, supposedly one of the most civilized countries in the world, a murder occurs about every 30 minutes. Man is a bloodthirsty creature. And murder is so common in the last hundred years we've almost become immune to it. In the last 75 years we have seen the murder of millions by the Nazis. Tens of millions by the communists. The murder of Christians almost every day. You can read uh, at places like the Voice of the Martyrs and other places on the internet where Christians are dying all over the world for no other reason than because they are Christians. And they are being murdered by the hundreds, by the thousands. You add to that the slaughter of millions of unborn babies in abortion. And it's a grim picture indeed. This is a very astute commentary on mankind. Feet swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. This is something that, that wicked people experience in themselves. Their way is misery and ruin, but it's also something they bring on others. Sin promises such wonderful things, and there is pleasure in sin for a season, for a while, but ultimately it kills. Ultimately it brings misery and ruin. Without a changed nature, human beings destroy themselves and they delight in destroying others. They are miserable, and they want others to be miserable as well. I remember an experiment that we did when I was in college uh, about, we, we tested the old axiom, misery loves company. And you, we did that by a, a series of tests where you would inflict a, a, a bit of pain, a jolt of an, a, a little electric current. And what we discovered was that that adage was not really true. It's not that misery loves company. Misery loves miserable company. We want, if we're miserable, we want everybody else to be miserable too. We, uh, 
we are naturally that way. And then verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. They don't have any personal peace. Isaiah 57 says, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. That also describes the effect that people have on each other. Having no peace themselves, they disrupt the peace of other people. There are three ways that men have no peace. First, they are not at peace with God. They are at war with Him. Secondly, they're not at peace with one another. They hate each other, and they attack one another. And third, they are not at peace with themselves. They're restless and distressed. Uh, The only way that we can find peace with God and with our fellow man and with ourselves is by coming to Jesus Christ. There God has bridged the gap, the gap between man and himself. There God made peace. There we may have peace with God and then have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And finally he talks about man's wicked witness. Verse 18. This is the most devastating of all of his charges. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When we talk about fear, we usually mean fright or terror. But primarily, although there's a sense that 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 word is used that way in the Bible, but mostly it denotes a reverential frame of mind before God. It has to do with worshiping God, obeying God, and departing from evil. That's why we read in Proverbs chapter 9, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That means that we approach God rightly, and when we do, everything else falls into place. When Romans 3.18 declares that the human race has not done this, It is saying what Paul has been stating all along. Because men and women will not know God, choosing rather to suppress the truth about Him, their minds become debased and they become fools. They claim to be wise, but they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds and animals and reptiles. It's interesting here, I think, that Paul refers to eyes. Uh, This is the sixth of the uh, specific body references uh, that Paul makes in these verses in order to make his accusations vivid, that we might remember them. He's referred to their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths, their feet. Now he mentions eyes. Since eyes are our organs of vision, to have the fear of God before our eyes means that we have God constantly in our thoughts and in a central position of everything that concerns us. Remember the psalmist said, I have set the Lord before my eyes continually. When when the commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, literally the Hebrew says, you shall have no other gods before your face. Always God in your vision. And that determines how you think about everything else. 
how you think about the world, how you think about the world's philosophy, and what you think of your fellow man. To have the fear of God before our eyes is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we will not come to God as he presents himself to us in Jesus Christ, if we will not repent of sin, if we will not put our faith in Jesus Christ, then it is appropriate to be really, really afraid of the Almighty, to be in terror of him. God's wrath hangs over us. His terrible judgment awaits those who will not repent who will not acknowledge him. The irony of the state of human beings is that we do not fear the one holy and judging God. Instead, we fear lesser entities. The pagan of Paul's days feared the vast pantheon of gods, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans, an assortment of other gods. The pagans... In the distant jungle, fear the rivers and the rocks and the thunder and the lightning and the spirits of the night. And the civilized pagan in 21st century America fears the future. We fear hostile neighbors. We fear disease. My, how that has manifested itself in the last few months. We fear technological breakdown. I mean... You have a fear that your phone won't work anymore? Then what will you do? What will you set adrift in a world without an iPhone? What can I, ooh. I mean you'd be like I mean you'd be like living when I was young. <laughs> we fear all kinds of things. And above all, everyone fears death. We fear death. Most of all. What irony. To fear all of the things that will pass away. To fear all of the things that one day will be no more. But not to fear God to whom one day we must give an account of our lives. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said, You fear mortal men, the sons of men, who are but grass, but you forget the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor. No wonder the psalmist said, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You know, the wonderful thing about fearing God, truly fearing God, in a reverential sense of being in awe of him and worshiping him and obeying him, is that if you fear God, you don't have to fear any of those other things. You, you, don't, you don't even have to fear death. Death is the last enemy that will be destroyed. For the believer, death is simply that moment that catapults you into glory. You don't have to be afraid of death. I've told you this before. I've talked about my father earlier. Shortly before my father died, he said to me, people ask him all the time, what's it like to die? He said, if you are a believer, it comes your turn to die. 
God will wrap you up in his love and you will have no fear. No fear. You can say truthfully, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything. If you fear God, then you can be set free of all your other fears, including the fear of death. Again, why is Paul giving this grim description of, of humanity? It, it would be better if I didn't have to say these things about mankind, about myself. But why is he saying it? So that we will understand that we are ruined by sin. We are fallen. We need a Savior. And God has provided that in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and who died in the place of sinners. To repent of sin, to believe in Him, to receive Him, is to receive His righteousness, His life, to be free from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.